All right, well, good morning, Fellowship of Faith. Guys, so good to see you here today. Those of you who don't know me, maybe you're new, maybe you're tuning in for the first time. My name's David Gadini, pastor here on staff at this church. And just on behalf of the band and all the people who are serving behind the scenes, thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of this. We are hitting week four today of questions you never thought you could ask in church. For the uninitiated here, let me describe how this has been working. All this month of June, I've been inviting you, believe it or not, to pull this out. And what I've been asking you to do is text in any question that you might have on God, life, theology, the Bible, and how it intersects with your own spiritual journey. And I've been getting those questions anonymously and doing uh, the best I can to try to answer them as transparently and straightforwardly as I can right on the spot. And over the past several weeks, we have gotten such a flood and volume of questions in, oh my gosh, that what we're doing today is batting cleanup. So unlike previous weeks, I am not actually going to put the number on the screen to text into because there are so many of you that have been waiting so patiently these past few weeks, and I want to try to hit every single question I can. We've had well over 150 questions come in, and I have got 19 slides I've got to get through today. 19 sets of questions, and I'm going for it, all right? We're going to see how far we get, but even if we don't make it, there's some good news about what's going to happen beyond there. Before I jump in, I like quotes. We all have favorite quotes, things that strike us and dig deep in our soul. And I want to share one with you that has resonated with me for the past 20 years easily. Reagan, put it on the screen for me. It's a Rob Bell quote where he said this, we have no desire to tame the text. We want to let it out of its cage and we want to see it prowl around our lives, devouring us and spitting out the bones. We don't want to be detached, methodical scientists who stand over the subject and apply the proper rules, methods, and procedures so that we can achieve favorable results. The modern impulse is always to reduce it to simple principles and clever maxims, to continually insist that with enough work, it will all make sense and line up. But life does not always line up. The Bible, this book, it is not a nice book. It is not a clean book. It is not a guide to proper behavior. It does not even seem to care whether it is relevant or not. The Bible is a revolutionary manifesto that could get you killed in many parts of the world. It is living, it is breathing, and it demands that we surrender to it unconditionally so that it can transform us. I believe this. I believe this because I think this is what Jesus teaches. I think this is what the prophet teaches, and it's what I've come to experience firsthand, that God has a message for each of us, and we can know who he is and where he's going in this world. And he gives it to us on the words on these pages. But so much more than turning this into something that conforms to our life, it invites us to conform to its. Because it's alive. It's breathing because the Spirit of God works through this thing. It's far more than information on a page. And I hope that through these questions that we entertain today, you come to taste and see the living spirit of a living God who's at work and invites you to be a part of what he's doing in this world. So let's see how these questions guide us. And I'm pretty excited about the first three because the first three come from a house church that we've been partnering with out in Nebraska. I haven't seen these, but they sent in a few video questions for us this morning. And let's, uh, let's take a look at the first one and see what we get. I'm supposed to say, if I had a question, okay, if I had a question for God, I'd ask him, why did you fool around with earth here? Why aren't we just in heaven right away? Makes have no sense to me. That's a great question. Did you catch it? Why, God, if I could ask you a question, do you fool around on earth here? Let's just get to heaven and get it over with. 
Thank you, brother, if you're listening today into the live stream of, of, of asking this. And I think it's one that a lot of us have wrestled with. I'll, I'll put it another way as well. A lot of us have kind of seen earth, I think, somewhat as a, as a holding tank or a waiting room until we get to what really matters in eternity. And I understand the reality of where that kind of thinking comes from and the reality of a sinful fallen world of how it can really feel that way. But see, here's the thing. God designed us to live on earth, not in heaven. And our future eternity is not in heaven, but it's on earth. A new earth combined with a new heaven. But if your perception of eternity is living a disembodied existence, floating around the, the metaphorical clouds and pearly gates, you have bought into a caricaturization of heaven and not the living, breathing revelation of heaven that God asks us to conform to. Because when God created this world, he created it material. He created us with physical bodies. He created mountains and streams and animals. You can read about it. It's often caricaturized or defined in the term we call Eden. And that's what God's hope is for us, that he wants to bring heaven to earth, not to get us out of earth to escape the horrors of what it's become. And so the reason God fools around here is because this place matters to him. And the future of this place matters to him. And he's coming to redore, restore and redeem every aspect of what this globe is. And what we do in this world now has significance that echoes into eternity. This is far more than a blip on the radar. No, this is the beginning of God's kingdom and what he's seeking to manifest in this place. Revelation 21 and 22 are some great places to read if you want more on that. Thank you, brother, for asking. And we've got a second question from our house church today. Here we go. Hi, Fellowship of Faith. I'm Terry Kino, and this is my wife, Kayla Kino, and we wanted to propose a question for your next sermon series. So our question is, if you are anxious about something, does that mean that you're lacking in your faith? That's our question. Hope to see you guys soon. See ya. First of all, isn't that like the coolest worship space? You know, so often don't we fall victim of thinking that a church has to mean a multi-million dollar project with stage and lights and building and campus and parking and coffee and seeing what wonderful gifts of God these are. But the substance of it People gathering in Jesus' name. I should have mentioned this earlier. We have a missionary here with us today. Her name is Elaine, and uh, she's a longtime part of Fellowship of Faith, but serving in Africa right now. And I swear the stories that she'll tell of how the church kind of meets. It's people gathering in Jesus' name, in living rooms, in basements, in parks, in parking lots. I love what they're doing here in this question. So let's get to Terry and Kayla and the question they've asked. Maybe you've asked it too. If I'm anxious about something, does that indicate a lack of faith? Maybe. Maybe. More questions need to be asked about what you're anxious about. I am an anxiety-ridden human being. It's taken me many years to learn how to tame it and temper it and combat it and do life with it as an almost ever-present reality. And sometimes you're anxious just because you're anxious. Because your chemicals are going haywire, you ate the wrong thing for breakfast, you didn't get enough sleep, the triggers are appropriate to what's setting you off. Sometimes you're anxious because there's really something to be anxious about. Anxiety is meant to be a good thing, it's a warning mechanism. And so, no, sometimes the presence of anxiety does not mean a lack of faith at all, but I'll tell you, it's easy to get stuck in anxiety, and it's easy to get stuck in points of anxiousness. And sometimes it does reveal that I'm worrying more about this than trusting in God. And one of the things I know I've had to learn is in those times to trust God more and worry less. It's strange to say you learn how to worry less, like you could just shut it off but you can learn to condition yourself. You can learn through a path of trusting God to kind of put it aside and not let it dominate you. And I've learned actually in my life, sometimes I've had to pray less. 
odd, isn't that? You'd think that prayer would be something that you would want to do more, but I've had to learn to pray less because my prayers were becoming something that I was doing to accomplish my end, and I needed to trust God more with what I was praying for than thinking that the recitation of my prayers would somehow in some, shall I say, OCD way affect a certain kind of peace in my heart or conclusion or end. So I wish I could give you more guidance on that, guys, but let's reach out and let's talk. I actually think we're talking with them tomorrow. Maybe we'll talk more on that, but if you're struggling with anxiety and faith, come talk to me. Um, I think I can help navigate you through some of those types of things. But I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I will leave it again today. When you look at some of the people in history with the deepest, most abiding faith, They've often had some of the deepest, most abiding internal struggles, be it anxiety or something else as well. So never think that your anxiety means an antithesis of faith. Great question. Number three. Okay, I just have one question. I don't understand why I have to, not that I think I'm better than anybody, but I know I'm saved, so why do the Christians have to go through Judgment Day? Why do Christians have to go through Judgment Day? You ever wonder that? Like, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Why do I have to go through Judgment Day? Because God says so. Great question. <laughs> the question reveals something, doesn't it? And I think it's a... I, I think it's because of the way we've been conditioned with the word judgment in society and culture today? Do you automatically assume that judgment is a bad thing? We do, don't we? No one wants to be judged. We always assume judgment is some negatively oriented result, but if we step back and just analyze the word, we realize that all of us make thousands of judgments a day. Am I gonna go here or am I gonna go there? Do I like this or do I like that? Will I binge watch this? Will I binge watch that? Will I eat this? Will I eat that? There's positive judgments in this world. See, there's no getting around this one. Each and every one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, will stand before the throne of God on some final day that Christians often term judgment day because that's the bulk of what's going on. Not the only thing, mind you, but it's kind of the things that we fixate on. We'll all stand before God and have to give an account for our life. More than that, even if you're a Christian, you'll have to give an account for your works. Those of you who are so drunk in Protestantism, oh, you just don't know what to do with works, do you? Good works are a good thing. And God values them. And each and every one of us will have to give an account before God of how we've conducted our lives, what we've done with our lives, what we've done with the gifts that he's given us. Whether we've lived in faith, taken chances for him, made bold risks, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves and we'll have to give account for far more than that as well. I love how 1 Corinthians 3 happens to put this. It's a little extended, but I think it's worth reading. And let me share just this one little picture with you. By the grace God has given me, Paul writes that I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. In other words, you should be careful how you build your life. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Without Christ, no matter how much building you try, it's worthless. It's shaky ground. It will collapse on judgment day. But Christ is our foundation, and we build upon it. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What you do matters. 
And make no mistake, in Jesus Christ you will be saved, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But what you do matters and will echo into eternity and be brought to light on that day of judgment. It's not just about heaven and hell. It's about the reward and glory and relationship with God on the other side. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, it kind of sobers me up. It sobers me up in life a little bit to not, to not take the things that God has called me to so flippantly or lightly. Anyway, Molly, I hope that helps. All right. Well, didn't we turn heavy? Here we go. Here's a couple more that we have. Now, these are three separate questions that came in from three different sources, but I tried to group some of these as we go through this today. How old was Jesus when he died on the cross? I don't know. How long has Jesus been gone from the earth? A long time. And was Jesus perfect? Yes. Let me go back and fill it out just a little bit more. Jesus did not have a birth certificate. The Gospels themselves will say he was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, but the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, would seem to picture a three-year ministry of Jesus, while John would seem to picture a one-year ministry of Jesus. So how old was he? I can't give you the exact date, but he was in his early 30s. Now, how long has Jesus been gone from the earth? Again, there's some speculation on how to date the date of his crucifixion and resurrection. Ironically, Jesus was born before Christ, meaning Jesus was probably born in 4 BC rather than 1 AD, like our dating method would handle it, but some would say it could have been 2 BC. Others would say it could have been 6 BC because it's just how you try to make ancient calendars work. Needless to say, if he lived 33 years or 30 years or 31 years or 32, there's some play. But can we safely kind of operate with like a 27 to 33 AD window when he died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven? And if so, do your math, and you're right about that 2,000-year pocket, or shall we say maybe more accurately, 1,990-ish kind of years that he's been gone from earth. And Jesus, was he perfect? Well, it depends what you mean by perfect. If you're talking about the moral quality of his life, yes. If you're talking about one who is free from sin, yes. If you're talking about one who is perfectly devoted to his father, yes. But if by perfect you mean did he get 100% on every test he took, no. Could he lift a million pounds? No. Could he speak Swahili when he was born? Probably not. Luke makes this explicit, that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom, and that while fully divine. He was also fully human and had to face what we would face. And that means he was a frail mortal who had to grow, strengthen, practice, train. How frustrating is this that the one who authored the Bible had to learn the Bible? You ever think about it that way? And if you devalue that side of what I'm saying, maybe you are making Jesus a little less human than he actually was. Which of course leads to all kinds of interesting like connotations that like, could you imagine being like one of Jesus' buddy and like having a race or having a fight and like, you, you know, you took him down or you beat him to the finish line. Like that would be existential crisis for me right there in that moment. Can you imagine being his rabbi, um, uh, you know, his, his, his rabbinic school teacher and it's like he got like an 83%. <laughs> you know, like, like how do you wrap your mind around that one? Welcome to the paradox of the one in this world who is fully divine and fully human at the exact same time. All right, here's another. Again, a collection of questions from different sources that I grouped. What if I don't know if I believe or not? If I try to tell myself I believe, but I don't know if I really do. Have you ever wrestled with that? I have. Is my faith sincere? Is my faith genuine? Am I just lying to myself? Have I truly surrendered? Have I really repented? It's all flavors of the same variety. Likewise, how does one know if he or she has a repentant heart if they go right back and sin again? 
take like addictive behaviors. Another one, addictive behaviors that are sin. One repents and then one sins again. The same sin repeatedly, the process continues. Is it at this point God cast us over to the sin? And I think it's supposed to be our, but I copy these word for word, are forevermore lost to the addictive, to this addictive sin? And do you believe that people can change for the better? Let's deal with the bookends and work our way in. You are not saved because of your faith. And get this, get this loud and clear. I've seen so many Protestants fall into this trap thinking they are saved by faith. You are not saved by faith. You are saved by grace. And grace comes through faith. And the distinction is important. Not just because it's biblical and accuracy to the biblical testimony is important. Because the way that you nuance that question speaks volumes to where you put your hope. Is your hope in Jesus or is your hope in you? Because if you are saved by your faith, then you are fundamentally hoping in the quality of something that you do. The genuineness of my faith, the strength of my faith, the quality of my faith, what I have to muster up and do, that is not what saves you. Jesus died for you and that's what saves you. And faith is simply the beggar going, oh, please. Faith is simply the wicked person going, oh, God, forgive me. With every mixed motive in the world, I think of the prodigal son. We know the, the parable of Jesus, right? The prodigal son. The son comes to his father, this father who's loved him, this father who's provided for him. And he says basically, dad, drop dead. Give me your inheritance now. I want to do my own thing my own way. And the dad allows him. Ooh, there's something telling in that parable about how God lets us interact with sin. God will allow you. And he takes his gifts, he takes his wealth, he takes his, his, his goodness from his father and he goes and he squanders it. And he finds himself living in a pigsty, literally, with his stomach grumbling, wishing he could just eat the pea pods that the pigs were eating. His life came so rock bottom that he wished he could have pig food. And you know what he did? He came to his senses. And this is how he came to his senses. Not, oh, I love my dad so much. Oh, I realize I've done such wrong. You know, look at the wreck my life has become. Dad's got a lot. Maybe if I go groveling back to dad, it'll take me back. Why? So my life is better. So I can have food to eat. I get it, but it's not very noble, is it? And that's what he does. With mixed motive, he goes back to his dad. But how does his father treat him? He's looking from afar. And when he sees his son on his horizon, he goes running. Against all dignity, he goes running. And he wraps his arms around his son and puts a cloak on his shoulders and a signet ring on his finger. And he kills a fattened calf and he throws a feast because his son is back today, even though his son comes with mixed motive faith. How do you know if you believe or not? It's not about convincing yourself to something up here. It's about what you do. Are you, what are you trusting for your salvation? Are you trusting in your own efforts? Are you trusting in your own rituals and routines? Are you simply crying out, dear God, save me? And if so, that's faith. That's faith. And if you're doubting whether you really do, then just do it. And then you know. Oh, God, save me. Even if I got 99% doubt that you actually will. Save me. And continue to say it. And to do it. Not to brainwash yourself. No, but as an action of what faith really is. And through that, God will work develop, bear fruit, and you will see that you will change for the better. You better believe that I believe it. The Bible teaches it. Yeah, you can change for the better. Even in the face of the stronghold and chains of addiction. 
And if your heart is broken, even over the addictions that you love and cherish and tuck away, but you keep coming back to God again, that's repentance. And it can take days, months, years, decades, and lifetimes to break those strongholds, but don't give up, continue to repent because sin has a way of hardening. And repentance is a way of, of softening that hardened shell around the heart. And while it is possible to give yourself over to sin so much that you go over some kind of cliff of no return, if you have any fear, any, any foreboding, any worry about that place, God is still working in you. So turn. Turn from it even if it's the thousandth or ten thousandth time. Because the power of Jesus is there. Not only to save you, but to free you. How about this? This is all the way from week one. What is Mark 3? And so, from another source... What about Mark 3? The question was asked in relation to the topic that I just mentioned today. When someone asked if there was any sin that was too much, too far, unforgivable, and I said no, and kind of an aside, I said, I know you're going to throw Mark 3 in my face, and you didn't ask about Mark 3, so I'm not going to answer Mark 3, so then he asked about Mark 3. (laughs) So what is Mark 3? It is a chapter in the Bible that follows Mark 2. And what about it? You know, it in its parallel, which you can find in Matthew, possibly Luke, but Matthew for sure. It's the only place really, not quite, but only place really in the Bible, certainly where Jesus talks about a sin that is unforgivable. Here's the gist. Here's the gist. Any blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Not in this age or in the age to come. And whether this is found in Mark 3 or the parallel, I don't remember, but at one point Jesus adds the line, for he has committed an eternal sin. This passage got me in a seminary. I was a senior in high school. And while God had kind of grabbed me and told me I had to do the pastor thing, I still didn't really know how that was going to lead at that point in my life, and I kind of had my own life plan still set out. And I was reading my Bible one night, and I knew this was in there, but you kind of forget about it, and when you don't like it, you put it out of your mind and try to ignore it. But I read it. And you ever have these moments, what I call these Romans sevens moments, where Like, before the law existed, I didn't know what sin was, but then as soon as I kind of come face to face with the command of God, it springs to life in me all these opposite kind of tendencies. And I read it, and I did it. And in that moment, I came face to face with the gravity of what I did as someone who believed that the Word of God was living and active and knew I had committed an eternal sin. And I remember crying out to God, going, save me but convinced by the words in here that I could never be saved again and realizing for the first time in my life that I threw away the most important thing in all existence and that I would stand there in judgment day and hear the verdict guilty and knew that God was right to do it. I share that story because if this passage in any way terrifies you as it terrified me, I've been there and I can help you through it and I can help you see that the simple words on the page are indicating something far different than what you think it might mean from a flippant misspoken phrase, spoken intentionally or not on the surface. The gist of what it's kind of getting down to is unbelief, that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Better put, rejection of the clear and present work of God. 
See, here's what's going on. The Pharisees are saying all the work that Jesus is doing. And it is clear to anyone, anyone who is willing to see that what is being done in Christ is being done through God and that what Christ is doing is good, but the Pharisees don't like him. So what they do is they attribute all the work of God's spirit in Jesus' life to the work of the devil instead. Because when you don't like something or someone, you will make up any story and find any way to rationalize it to be something else, won't we? And the Pharisees are sitting there denying those who should know better than anyone what is so clear right in front of their face. What is so clearly the work of God, denying it, rejecting it, which is blaspheming the very one who's doing it. And Jesus warns them. He's like, you know, you can reject me, Jesus says. You can reject me and be forgiven. But if you continue to reject the clear work of God in your life, you will find yourself cast out on judgment day banging to get in because you have rejected the very one who is trying to bring you life and salvation. Not everyone will be saved on judgment day. But those who cry out for mercy unto God, which presupposes realizing that God is trying to do a work, I'll take heart and warning. Take heart that any sin can be forgiven for those who are in Christ, but if you continue to reject the power of God in him and what he's trying to do in your life is very dangerous ground. Hope that helps. Another collection. We always get a collection of heaven questions. We have so many questions about heaven, don't we? You're going to spend somewhere for eternity. You kind of want to know what it's like. What are your thoughts on different levels of rewards in heaven? If I'm rewarded less than others, will I even be in the presence of God? Will I be separated from those I love rather than reunited? For example, my kids, my spouse are rewarded greater than I. Therefore, am I on a different level than they are? You know, you, kinda, you see where that's kind of going? Some others, when I die, do I go to heaven immediately or do I stay and sleep till Jesus returns? Three, will we recognize our family and friends in heaven? Four, do you believe that there's a literal staircase to heaven? Five, is there an entrance to heaven? Let's spend some time on number one. Now, remember earlier when I read 1 Corinthians 3, it talked about how you're building and what kind of materials or what kind of work you're doing. Do you, do you, do you conduct your life with the quality of gold or is it silver or is it straw? And on the day of judgment, it will be tested and result and reward. It's where some of this kind of comes from. Let me kind of help you navigate what it seems like it will be like, particularly in these relations, like, okay, so I got to live like over here and they live over there and I never see them. Don't think about it in terms of level as much as you think about it in terms of experience. Let me ask you some questions. Have you ever had times in your life of overwhelming, all-consuming joy? Can, can you just like own that one? Have you ever had like complete euphoria in your life? We're doing something so wrong at this church. <laughs> Honestly, if you haven't, question the work of God in your life. Because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And if you're afraid to own the joy of what God is doing in your life, God, this, guys, that's very problematic. If you cannot own to joy in a safe setting like this, what the hell are we doing here? Can I ask you again? Have you ever had abounding joy in your life? Okay. Have you ever had moderate levels of joy? Have you ever been in a situation where other people have had extreme levels of joy and you've had none? You ever been in a family situation or with a group of friends where there's like three of them that are just loving something and you're not. It doesn't mean you hate it. It doesn't mean that you're miserable per se, but we can experience things at different levels, right? Would you agree? Even though we're experiencing the exact same thing in the exact same place. Have you ever been around someone who is so in love with someone while someone else is kind of like lukewarm on them? You are so into your boyfriend, but your best friend is just like, eh, 
You know what I mean? To me, this serves as an image or a metaphor for God. Those of us who are in Jesus will be in heaven and then eventually the new heaven and new earth for eternity. But what will your experience of it be like? The honor bestowed on you, the glory that surrounds you, the glory of who you are? Oh no, that's dependent on other things. And we will all be together. I think you will see your loved ones. I don't think they will be separated from you, but if you want to make the most of what the glory is on the other side, it starts today. And the level of what you'll experience is at least in part determined by the seedbed that you start laying in that foundation of Christ today. So hopefully that helps you kind of navigate it. And when I die, do I go to heaven immediately? Yes, it would seem that you do. Some Christians, there is diversity of thought, have entertained the idea of soul sleep, which means you're in an unconscious state until Christ comes again. And, it, and it's possible, um, but, but most Christians lean more to another way, which seems to be that you are in the presence of God, even though disembodied. Will we recognize our family and friends? It seems that that would be the case. Do you believe there is a literal staircase to heaven? If by that, do you mean that when I die, I will see the escalator come down. I will plant spirit feet on it like that. Well, you know, no, but I'll tell you this. Jacob saw one in Genesis 28. And do I think I got to like, 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 did you watch Soul or, you know, any of those like Pixar movies or stuff like that where I got to kind of traverse it up? I think it starts getting a little weird with it. I I don't think it's going to work that way, but hey, we'll see. And is there an entrance to heaven? I don't know. The Bible speaks that way, but the Bible speaks in metaphorical language for heaven. And so at some point we're in it, but is it like, here's the door? I don't really think it's that as much as it's an alternate state of reality. That strangely, heaven might be right here existing on another plane or dimension, if I can be like that. We always think about it as geographically distant, don't we? Just something to entertain. What is the Christian stance then on psychics and mediums? Can people talk to people who are in heaven or a spirit world? Can't God give them special talents? You know, the Christian stance on psychics and mediums has historically been, don't mess with it, You can read throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but New Testament as well, where there are very strict warnings and even Old Testament laws against mediums, against witchcraft, against the dark arts, or whatever kind of language or translation you want to give it. And it seems to be that because while even though many who dabble in these kinds of things might be con artists or just screwing around, they nonetheless flirt with something far deeper and sinister than maybe even the psychics and mediums understand. I think of the book of Acts where Paul comes face to face with a woman not gifted but described as afflicted with the ability to communicate with the spirit world and foresee things that were to come and Paul cast out the spirit that afflicted her in this way. And to be free of that was truly freedom. Now her slave owner was ticked. He lost his revenue stream. And Paul was driven out of town. But can God give them special talents? Let's not talk about God giving them the talent as much as can certain people have special talents, abilities, have tapped certain things, learned certain things in this world? Yes, biblically it seems that some could. And God says, don't. And even if you're gifted that way, turn from it. Isn't that denying my gift? My intrinsic abilities? Yeah, it is. Some people are good at killing. They just are. Don't do it. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Good question. This one I like. Sorry. So you're praying for someone, praying for healing, but you are also praying for God's will to be done. If what you, 
if what you hard praying for is counter to his will, which of course at this point we don't know what that might be and what we are praying for is counter to his will, can our praying change his mind? If not, why do we pray? We, we get into these, these mental traps, don't we? With prayer. God calls me to pray tenaciously. And yet I need to trust the outcome to God. And the very one who calls me to pray tenaciously is also the one who says, don't babble on like the pagans. So what am I supposed to do and how do I pray? And can I pray myself into a bad place, right? I'm praying for this because I want this, but God wants that. And what if I don't know if God wants that? And I end up praying for this instead and God goes, well, okay, I was going to give you something better, but I'm going to give you this instead. And it just kind of reveals that a lot of us are really afraid that we, we're really afraid that God's going to screw us over. We are. And Jesus speaks very matter-of-factly to that. You're not the only one to think that. Jesus actually teaches about this in the Gospels. He goes, which of you, if you ask for a fish, if you go to your father and ask for a fish, your dad's going to give you a stone. Or if you ask for some eggs, he's going to give you a scorpion. Now, I think that would be pretty funny. But which of your dads would do that other than me? And this is Jesus' punchline. He goes, even though you are evil, even you who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven, who is perfect, give good gifts to those who ask of him? Look, pray your guts out. God is not going to screw you over. You got to trust him. You hear this come out in some mild ways with with Christians too. Never ask for patience. Never pray for patience because God's going to give it to you. You think God's out to get you. Patience is a good thing. Ask for it. And trust him that he's not going to mess up your life. You might become more aware of impatient situations, but he's not going to orchestrate like more traffic jams in your life. What do you think he is? Sadistic? Got the magnifying glass, burn that in today, because ha, 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 he, no. No, God wants to gift you with good things, so pray for it and pray boldly, knowing that if it isn't good for you, God's going to say no. Or God might let you taste it. But always pray, thy will be done. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Always pray that way. Trust God more, but within that, ask if it's what you want and trust the details to him. Believe me, I get it. I get it. But you can trust him. How can a Christian largely abandon a portion of Christ's teaching to blindly follow the rhetoric of any specific political party and feel good about it? Easy, because Christians are inconsistent. Christians are inconsistent. Christians believe all kinds of things that aren't in line with the way of Christ. Christians have no problem believing contradictory truths and living contradictory ways because Christians are ultimately divided people at their core. Christians are both saints and sinners simultaneously, which means they will never be integrated and never be whole and never be complete this side of God's sanctifying work, which means Christians buy into all kinds of things, whatever it might be on the spectrum, that are wrong and untrue and lie-filled, and sometimes it's out of ignorance, and sometimes it's just out of a lack of a sanctified place. But take heart in that because it means that God is gonna work in an unsanctified person like you, whoever may have asked this question as well, and all the inconsistencies that you live with in your worldview, and work with you, and walk alongside you, and love you, and redeem you, and restore you in that place too. Why in Genesis, in the same verses, do Jacob and Israel interchange names? I know God renamed Jacob, but why does the author not just use one name or the other? It's maddening, isn't it? Is there a significance? Yes, there is a significance. Because in the Bible, names matter. And by that, what I mean is names are meant to indicate something. When you name someone in the Bible, 
And certainly when God names someone in the Bible, it is meant to indicate something about the nature and character of who you will become, and it is something that speaks of your destiny. God comes to Jacob, whose name means deceiver, and he proved himself to be one. He lived out his destiny, and in his deception, and the traps and issues that that created for him had to flee. And God meets him out in a wilderness place. And he sees staircases to heaven and God comes down or an angel of the Lord and fights with him throughout the night. And Jacob won't let go. Daybreak's coming and he's like, this, this angel or, or, or God's like, I gotta go. And he's like, why, it's daybreak? I gotta get a vampire or something? But whatever, I gotta go. And Jacob is holding on. I won't let you go, not until you bless me. And then God fights dirty and he blows out his hip socket. But Jacob still won't hold on. It's a great story and you gotta read it. And whether because of his tenacity or for other purposes at play, God blesses Jacob. And he says, you're not a deceiver anymore. <laughs> Let it all on the table. No, you're Israel. You know what Israel means? One who fights with God. Isn't that the most accurate name of anyone in a relationship with God you have ever heard? Who are we? We're people who fight with God. And he renames them because their significance to not only who he is, but the destiny of what he and his people will be. And so I know that's frustrating when you're reading the Bible. It's like one more thing you got to learn. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well, that's how God rolls, so pony up. <laughs> Why is there a final judgment at the end of days if Christ has already cleansed us from our sins? Is it then that we profess again our faith in Christ? Yeah, we already kind of touched on this. You will profess your faith again at that point. But judgment goes far beyond saved, not saved. We all stand at final judgment. And what we get is kind of an out on parole as being Christians right now, right? We haven't gone before the final, before the final judge, but we're let out because of the merits of Christ. In one of his epistles, Paul says that an unbelieving spouse is justified through the believing spouse. It's actually in 1 Corinthians, it's chapter 7. Should we take that literally, or was he just trying to keep newly believing spouses from divorcing? Um, a couple points of clarification. It doesn't say that they'll be justified. It says that they'll be sanctified, and there is a big difference in those words. Okay? It does say that they will be sanctified, and I'll actually open it and read it to you. It's 1 Corinthians 7. I believe it's verse 14, but I will confirm that as soon as I flip there. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Almost there. Starts at, yeah, it's verse 14. For the unbelief, okay, to the rest I say this. I, not the Lord, meaning I didn't get this word from Jesus, it's Paul talking. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer he must, and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, not justified, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Isn't that weird? What do you do with that? What Paul is doing is he's drawing on Old Testament purity laws to give some practical advice to people who are married in a situation today where one is a believer and one is not. And what he is saying is those of you who have spouses who don't have believers, God's called you to that marriage. You need to fight for that marriage. You need to be in that marriage. And if your husband or wife who is not a believer is willing to live with you even though your first loyalty is to Jesus and not that person, honor that marriage. But the question kind of comes up, what does that mean for my kids? Like, am I made, Old Testament world, unclean? Are my kids unclean? Because in the Old Testament spectrum, uncleanliness always beats cleanliness. You're clean, you come into something come into contact with something that's unclean, now I become unclean. What's so fascinating about Jesus is that he reverses that. 
that Jesus goes and, 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 and touches unclean things and makes them clean without getting tainted because the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of God in his church. And that means as believers, we can go into the most unclean of places and that uncleanness will not affect us, but we are going to bring the salt and the light to them. And so if you live in a relationship with an unbelieving spouse and you're worried what impact or influence that will have on my kids, what he's kind of saying is take heart. The power of God is stronger than unbelief. Now, this is me speaking now, not Paul or the Lord. The reality I've seen for many believers who marry an unbelieving spouse is that their commitment to Jesus is like that big and so they end up kind of putting that aside. It does put the onus on you to keep your loyalty first to Christ, which will make your marriage better, by the way. But it's to keep that first if you want it to have that effect because your kids will always go the easiest way, I promise you. So keep that in mind, but that hopefully spells out a little bit more of what that passage is about. For time's sake, I just can't get to them all. I was hoping I can make it, but I'm going to honor the clock here. But I want to leave you with two things. One, maybe I didn't get to your question. Maybe this has raised more questions. Maybe the sum total of questions in your life can't be contained to the month of June. You know, years ago, we hosted a podcast here at Fellowship of Faith. Our former worship director, Mark Chaffee, some of you remember Mark? We ran a podcast called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. We're resurrecting this podcast again. Starting July 7th, Wednesday, from 12.30 to 1.30 p.m., we will be live for an hour, and it will be available in a recording as well. And I will get to some of these questions and many more that we'll invite you to ask. So know that that's coming. Number two, maybe this has raised more questions and therefore more ah oh, through the process by the answer I've given. I want to leave you with one more Rob Bell quote today. It resonates with me as well. I like to think that teaching begins the discussion, he says. I think that's the greatness of Jesus' teaching, is that it pushes us and it begins the discussion. We're still talking about Jesus' teachings. And so my goal is always to begin a discussion about whatever we're diving into. And so sometimes you might leave here thinking, but now I have way more questions than answers to which I respond Yes, because as the ancient rabbis would put it, if your study of the Bible does not lead you to wonder and awe, wonder and awe of the greatness of God you have not studied, you have not studied, because God is big and transcendent. And every time you turn a corner and see more about him, it will unleash a new vista and horizon of even more of the depth and richness of who he is. Do not be afraid of your questions. Embrace them. And through those questions, come to see the greatness and awe of a great and awesome God more and more. Do you have more questions? God, I hope so.